Well, good morning. A guy named Don Carson once said that if you live long enough, you will suffer. And the only people who haven't suffered are those who haven't lived long enough. Um, It's just a fact of life. And Peter has a lot to say about suffering in this book. In fact, if you were to read through the book of 1 Peter and not, uh, not pick up on this consistent theme really all throughout the entire book <clears throat> I would wonder are you sure you're reading first Peter <laughs> it's just it's it's in chapter one chapter two chapter three chapter four chapter five this this constant theme and Peter is it's not like he loves that people suffer but he loves the people that do suffer and Peter has, in, in chapter 1, Peter appeals to his authority as apostle. In chapter 5, Peter appeals to himself as a fellow pastor, a fellow shepherd in the church. He has a deep love for his pe- the people he's writing to. He has a deep love for them to know Christ in the midst of suffering, to know the power of Jesus at work in us and through us in the midst of these things, and to give us great comfort and encouragement in it. Verses 18 to 22 of our passage this morning uh, wonderfully points us to the suffering of Jesus and the good that it brings to us. Verses 18 to 22. And uh, if you took those verses and just those verses outside of its context, you would, you would miss actually the, the, the main point of the passage. Verse 17 of chapter 3 and verse, verse 1 of chapter 4 actually provide the main point of the text. Verse 17 says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And then verse 18 starts with, For Christ also suffered. Or we might say it's better to suffer for doing good than, than for doing evil, because Christ also suffered. He tells us why this is true. Because Jesus himself also suffered. And then at the very end, after verses 18 to 22, where Peter fleshes out for us what Christ has done and and what he has accomplished on our behalf through his suffering. Verse 1 of chapter 4 says this, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. In other words, again, Peter's looking back at what he's just said in verses 18 to 22 of chapter 3. I don't know about you, but I find one of the hardest realities in life is when you suffer unfairly. <clears throat> I mean, you really don't deserve it. I mean, none of us are, blame, are blameless in our actual lives, but you are going through life, you're trying to do good, and you suffer for it. And here's the reality. Everyone does at some point. And again, I mean, you really don't deserve it. The early Christians Peter's writing to knew this well. They were an easy and convenient scapegoat. They were blamed for things they didn't do. And many of these Christians suffered imprisonment and economic setbacks and sanctions. They experienced displacement. They were kicked out of their homes. They were chased. And many of them were tortured and killed. Now, the most basic instinct to our flesh when we are mistreated 
and especially when we don't deserve it, is to what? Retaliate. To seek revenge. To settle the score. Vengeance. Right? We all, every one of us in our own sinful nature have this statement, vengeance is mine, we say. God says vengeance is mine, but we say the same thing often. But the gospel guides us to navigate through the waters of unfair, undeserved suffering. The Apostle Peter never compels us to get even. Peter never justifies retaliation. Peter never encourages vengeance. He never encourages even... I mean, unforgiveness and bitterness is a kind of revenge, isn't it? I mean, usually we're the only ones that suffer, but we think we're getting even with someone because we're holding a grudge. Instead, Peter tells us to accept insults, to to accept slander, to accept mocking, and to accept unfair treatment with a firm, settled trust in God. And I say firm, settled. I don't mean just some flippant, yeah, everything's going to work out in the end. With a firm, settled trust in God. This surely does not describe the domestic policy of our sinful nature. But it does describe the policy of our new life in Christ. When we are mistreated... We humbly accept it with a firm, settled trust in God. At the end of the day, Peter wants us to have great courage to face suffering this way. Peter wants you and me to have great courage to accept suffering in this way. Peter wants to give us strong encouragement for when we, are, when we suffer unfairly. And here's the truth. Because we will. Because you will. In this letter, Peter uses phrases such as those who suffer for righteousness sake. He talks about suffering for doing good. He talks about suffering for the name of Christ. He talks about suffering as a Christian. And of course, Peter heard Jesus the Lord speak the same way. Jesus uses phrases like suffering for the gospel's sake and suffering for my sake, Jesus says, and and the words Peter uses, suffering for righteousness' sake. Here's what this means. You, as a Christian, everyone here, you want to live for Jesus. And you do live for Jesus. And you suffer for it. You want to do what's right, and you do what's right, and you suffer for it. You want to do good, and you actually do good, and in your doing good, you suffer for it. Some here may be in a situation where your teen or grown child has rebelled and turned away from you, and perhaps from the Lord as well, and here's the kicker, they blame you for it. And you have loved them and poured your life out for them, and you still do. And they blame you for rejecting God, and they blame you for all their problems. That is undeserved suffering. Others may be here, and you find yourself in a situation where you are routinely 
and unfairly mistreated by your husband or your wife. Perhaps you're at Thanksgiving and you desire so much to be salt and light and all you get is mocked. This is why the prosperity gospel, and I mean the prosperity gospel gets it all wrong. It promises that if you believe in Jesus and follow him, wealth will come to you, ease will come to you, bad things won't happen to you, your children will not turn from Jesus. Peter's letter would find that message very hard to understand. So you need encouragement for your heart. So when you suffer unfairly, notice I don't say if you suffer unfairly, but when you suffer unfairly, in however big or small a way, you will respond not by retaliating or score settling, but with grace and with patience. And so what Peter does to help us with this is he points us to the undeserved sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ. What better thing could he do But point us to Christ, who suffered totally unfairly, completely undeservedly. If anyone suffered, it was Christ. It was Jesus. And if anyone suffered unfairly, it was Jesus. That's the point of verse 18, or at least one of the points of verse 18, which says, For Christ also suffered for sins. Get this. Listen to this phrase. The righteous for the unrighteous. Christ suffered for sins, not his own. The righteous one suffered for unrighteous people. There is an ocean of glory in these words. What kind of love is this? In his great love, Jesus, the righteous one. If you struggle receiving the felt love of Christ, you need to hear this. The righteous one suffered for you and me, unrighteous people. He didn't deserve it, of course. He was the sinless, spotless one, and yet he suffered because of my sin. Because of my sin. I was visiting with a friend uh, just a couple weeks ago. He's not a believer. But just in a moment of honesty, he was lamenting someone he, he cared for, passed away of cancer. He says, why do good things happen, or bad things happen to good people? He said, and in a moment of honesty, and it was an open door for the gospel, it was, it was a great thing. He said, all the horrible things I have done, I deserve to suffer. For all of my sin, each one of us can say this, for all of my sin, I deserve suffering, eternal suffering. And he suffered for me? There's such deep encouragement here. Let's let Peter encourage us this morning. Let's let Peter give us encouragement and help us have courage for when we suffer unfairly, or for some here, as you are right now, suffering unfairly. So there's three things I want to draw out out of verses 18 to 22. First is Jesus suffered unfairly to bring you 
home to God. Jesus suffered unfairly to bring you home to God. Verse 18 again. Here we see the clearest and most potent implication of the gospel in all the Bible for you and I. It doesn't get higher than this. It doesn't get greater than this. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. The purpose? That he might bring us to God. That he might bring us to God. Peter shockingly hops right over numerous precious gifts. And they're, they're unpacked in other places, but he hops right over them. Precious gifts which the death of Jesus secures for us, such as, salv- such as forgiveness and justification and eternal life. He hops right over all of those things and gets to the most central reason why Christ died for you, to bring you to God. There was this infinite chasm between you and God, and Jesus suffered the righteous for the unrighteous, the righteous for the unrighteous in order to bring us to God, our Father. Amen. Thank you, Lord. We could have never, in a million years of our best days, we could have never made it to him. Jesus has brought you to God. This makes the true Christian heart, Christian's heart come alive and leap for joy. He has brought us to God. You could say this is the summit of gospel promises. John Piper in his book, God is the Gospel. I love the title of that book, and, and it's a great book too. Says this, preachers can say dozens of true and wonderful things about the gospel and not lead people to where the gospel is leading. People can hear the gospel preached or read it in their Bibles and not see the final aim of the gospel that makes the good news good. What makes the events of the death and resurrection of Jesus and the promises they secure good news is that they lead us to God. Jesus himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to heaven except through me. That's not right, is it? No one comes where? To the Father. No one comes to the Father but through me, except through me, Jesus says. Jesus is the way to the Father. Jesus leads us to the Father. Now, of course, this has massive future implications. It has a massive future orientation to it. We will in the future be brought to God. And when we are, He will satisfy our souls forever. But there's also a present dimension to this which we must have as Christians. The beloved parable of the prodigal son portrays a reckless son rejecting his father, going out, living a reckless, sinful, rebellious life and comes to himself. And what does he do? He comes home to his gracious father. It's a picture of 
The gospel is a picture of what happened to each and every person here who has come to faith in Christ. You came home through Jesus, right? The path you came down, the road you came down was Christ and you came home to the Father. And what did he do? He ran to you and he embraced you and he kissed you and he put a robe on you and he put a ring on your finger and he put sandals on your feet and he threw a party for you. Paul graciously reminds us that we once had no hope and were without God in the world. And then he says this, this is Ephesians 2.13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, you're out in the wilderness of your sin, you once were far off, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Jesus suffered undeservedly to give you this, to bring you to God, to bring you home to your Father. A prayer that St. Augustine recorded in his book Confessions helps us understand this in which he said, this is a prayer he's praying to God. He says, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds rest in you. Just to give you a modern translation. God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are homeless until they find home in you. We are homeless. We are, we are runaways. We are orphans until we are brought home to God as our Father. And Jesus suffered undeservedly, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you there. So here's a question to sufferers. Those who are suffering now, those who feel like you are going through things, you don't feel like you deserve it, you're trying, you've done what you feel like you're supposed to do and you are suffering for it. And this is also a question for those who will suffer someday and that's all of us. Do you know your total acceptance with God such that you are at ease and relaxed before him? Total acceptance with God. The righteous died for the unrighteous, not to try to bring us to God, but to bring us to God, to bring us to him. Have you found your home in God, your Father? The Lord Jesus died to bring you there. The door is open. His heart, God's heart, the Father's heart is open to you. And so come on in. Come on in, in your suffering. God can become more real and more precious to you. It's like he wants you to come in and sit on the couch. There's a fire stoked in the fireplace. And he wants to comfort you. He wants you to sit down. He wants to bring you incredible comfort and grace in his presence. Your father's massive and tender hands will hold you. 
But Jesus not only suffered to bring us to God, not only suffered to bring, unfairly suffered to bring us to the Father, he also suffered unfairly to rescue you from certain disaster. Verses 19 and 20. Let's read this again. It says, actually starting in verse 18, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he, namely Jesus, went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, Because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through water. These are some challenging verses, all right? So I'm going to do my best here. We're going to get the big point. We're going to get the point of these verses. I'm going to try to unpack it faithfully to God. When, When you and I read Old Testament stories, what we often do is we look for the moral of the story. Right? We read these Old Testament stories and we are looking for the moral, like, what do we need to do in order to be like Daniel? Or to be like Esther? Or to be like Gideon? Or to be like Deborah? What must we do in order to be like these people? Or in the case of these two verses, three verses, what do we need to do to be like Noah? We need to hear what God says and we need to do what he says, right? This isn't totally wrong. This is not a completely incorrect way of reading the Old Testament. We want to. We should draw out imitative principles from biblical stories. However, the apostles read the Old Testament in a Christocentric way or a Christ-centered way. So, in other words, they saw Jesus and what he did and his work on the cross and resurrection. They saw it everywhere in the Old Testament. I'm reminded of Luke 24. I would have loved to be one of these two guys. Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus with two disciples. They get there. Jesus opens up the scripture and begins to point to himself in all of the Old Testament. Anyone else? Like, I would have loved that. Because I read a lot of the Old Testament. I don't see it. But that's that's what Peter's doing here. He saw Jesus... Peter looks at the death of Christ on the cross and our salvation, and he looks back at the story of Noah and the ark, and he sees some parallels. He sees parallels with Noah and Jesus, and he sees parallels with the rescue of Noah from the flood and Christian baptism. So, Noah and Jesus. He sees a parallel between Noah and Jesus. It says that Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Jesus, I believe this is what Peter's communicating. Jesus, through the voice of Noah, preached to Noah's generation. Jesus, through the voice of Noah, was preaching to that generation. The spirits are now in prison, namely, they are in hell because they did not heed Noah's words. They didn't heed the words of Christ through Noah. Remember how Peter describes the Spirit of Christ speaking through the Old Testament prophets in chapter 1 of 1 Peter? Verses 10 and 11 says this, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, they searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. 
So it was the Spirit of Christ in Noah warning the wicked of his day to flee from the flood of God's judgment that was certain to come. 2 Peter 2.5 gives us this, this indication. You wouldn't read it just reading through the Genesis account. But it gives us this idea that, that, that Noah was a herald of righteousness. He was a preacher of righteousness, preaching to the people about their sin and about the flood of God's judgment that was coming and calling them to seek refuge. So Jesus, through Noah, was proclaiming or preaching to that generation as as Noah proclaimed righteousness to that generation. Doesn't this sound like our Savior? Throughout the Gospels, over and over and over again, Jesus called people to come to himself. He says, come to me. He says, I am a good shepherd. He says, come, 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 find rest in me. I am, I give water that is life-giving. I give bread that is true life. But the people in Noah's day rejected Noah. And worse, I think what our text is saying is, they rejected Christ. because he was preaching through Noah. And therefore, that unbelieving generation was swept away in the flood. Which leads to the second parallel, and this is the main point I want to draw out. The parallel between Noah's salvation from the flood and Christian baptism in Peter's day and Christian baptism in our day. Verse 21 says, baptism, which corresponds to this, corresponds to what? Corresponds to the end of verse 20, where it talks about Noah and his family were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism corresponds to Noah and his family being safe in the ark from the flood. Baptism, in this sense, is a saving act. But we need to back up here because Peter qualifies that statement. He says, baptism then saves you. But then he says this, not the removal of dirt from the body. That one phrase, baptism saves you, has caused all kinds of mischief. Get them wet, Right? Baptism saves you, not the removal of dirt from the body, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. It's not getting dunked in water that saves you. Peter says what saves you is what baptism signifies. It's not the removal of dirt from the body. It's not getting wet. It's not going under the water or being sprinkled or whatever. And what baptism signifies is the response of the heart that appeals to God for a good conscience. It's the response of the heart that appeals to God in faith to be saved. In other words, baptism, water is not the instrument of salvation, but faith is. Appealing to God for good conscience. Peter at Pentecost proclaims, 
Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls upon him, everyone who, who appeals to God by faith will be saved. But something amazing happens when we trust in Jesus. And this escapes so many people. I mean, yes, we, we say we're going to be, our sins are forgiven and we get to go to heaven someday. Those are wonderful things. But there is something so beautiful and glorious that escapes the notice of many. It is no small thing. It is amazing. Faith in Christ, faith in Jesus, unites us to him. In his death, and burial, and resurrection, right? When, we bapt- when someone is baptized, what do we do? They go underwater, and they come back up, signifying death, burial, resurrection. And that is to point us to what happens the moment we trust in Christ. We are united to Jesus now and forever in his death, burial, resurrection, and even in his ascension. We are seated with Christ in heavenly places. So Jesus' death is counted as your death if you've trusted in him. Jesus' resurrection is counted as your resurrection. And that's that's the connection Peter makes when he says we we appeal to God by faith for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Christian baptism corresponds to Noah's salvation from the flood in this way. Noah averted the disaster of the flood by being brought safely through the water by means of the ark. And you and I avert the disaster of our final enemy, death, through what baptism signifies, namely our union with Jesus by faith. We avert disaster, the disaster of death and final judgment because we've been united to Jesus and his death is our death and his burial is our burial and his resurrection is our resurrection. And so Jesus said in John 11, whoever believes in me, will never die. Will never die. So let me ask those who are here today and you're suffering and those who will, so I'm asking everyone this. Is there a greater disaster to be spared from than death and judgment apart from Jesus? Whatever minor or major disaster you seem to be walking through right now, Jesus died unfairly and rose to rescue you from this certain disaster that was going to come. Finally, Jesus suffered unfairly as a precursor to his exaltation. Verse 22 shows us that the death of Jesus, though undeserved, led to his resurrection and eventual exaltation as the sovereign king with universal dominion. Universal dominion. 
Here's what verse 22 says. Who has gone, Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Our memory text this month out of Isaiah 9. The government rests upon his shoulders. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. This is your Lord. This is your Savior. This is your King. Jesus has been exalted and is placed under his feet. Verse 22 says angels. Probably what, he mean, what Peter means is evil demons under the feet of Jesus. They, they cause havoc and mischief, but they are under the feet of Christ. He is king over them. He has placed, Jesus has placed authorities under his feet. Whatever authorities exist in the world, whatever authorities exist in the world, they are under his feet. Jesus is their king. And Jesus has placed powers under his feet. All the powers of the world. All the powers of the world. And perhaps the authorities and powers that you are feeling unfairly treated by. Jesus is their king. Jesus is their Lord. But Christ's exaltation had to be preceded by his humiliation. He first needed to be obedient to the point of death on the cross before he could ascend as sovereign king. And Paul points this out in Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 to 11, where it says, Jesus humbled himself unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore, That's the key word. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. To you who are suffering, think about the massive implications of this. This exalted Lord of the universe, get this, he loves you. He cares about you. Right now in your predicament, right now in your situation, right now in your suffering, he loves you. If others revile you, be encouraged. Jesus, who has all authority in heaven and on earth and the entire universe, rejoices over you with shouts of joy. Isn't that amazing? Wow. Sometimes I I get so bent out of shape about what others think about me and what they might be saying about me. And I think very little about what Christ thinks of me and about what he says about me and not only says about me, but sings over me. 
If others mistreat you, be encouraged. Jesus, who is at the right hand of God the Father, is your shepherd, and he will lead you continually to green pastures and beside still waters. If you are unfairly neglected or forgotten, Jesus wants you to be encouraged this morning. He has never and will never lose sight of you. And it's not, it's not that Jesus is next to us and, and with us, but his hands are handcuffed. But he can't do anything. No, no, no. Jesus is the king with universal dominion. His suffering was a precursor to his exaltation. I love the promise in Matthew 28. It's the the Great Commission passage. And Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth belongs to me. This is Jesus as king over all. You believe that? I mean, do you... What did the guy say in uh, the Truth Project? Do you really believe that? He said, said it differently than that. <laughs> Do you really believe that? All authority, Jesus says, has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And then the last thing he says to his disciples is this, and I am with you always to the end of the age. He doesn't just say I'm with you to the end. He says I am with you always. This moment. This very moment. And his disciples who were about to embark on an adventure would suffer. And Jesus was with them always. So the suffering of Christ was a precursor to his exaltation. And here's the deal. So it is with you. Paul says in Romans eight seventeen, you are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided you suffer with him. Provided you suffer with him in order that you also may be glorified with him. It was a precursor for Jesus and this is the road that we as believers are called to walk. So finally, we come to our only command in the whole passage. It's chapter 4, verse 1. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Like a marine infantryman who's heading into battle, would arm himself with his rifle and his vest and a knife and everything he needs. He's arming himself with those weapons and that protection we are to arm ourselves with this way of thinking. Since Christ also suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with this way of thinking. Since Jesus suffered in this way for you, in order to redeem you and save you and bring you to God and rescue you from disaster and in order to be exalted to the right hand of God the Father, because Jesus suffered unfairly in this way, arm yourselves with this same way of thinking. So Peter says later in chapter 4, he says, in, other, in so many words, 
when you go through hard things, don't think it's a strange thing. I, I still sometimes do. I'm just like, don't think it a strange thing. There was a, there was a man named Bishop Festo Kivangiri. He's often considered Africa's Billy Graham. He was forced to flee Uganda after one of the leaders of the church that he was the bishop of was killed by the brutal dictator Idi Amin in Uganda. While in exile, Kivangiri was asked a question. He was asked, if you were sitting in Idi Amin's office with a gun in your hand, what would you do? He responded, I would give the gun to Amin and say, this is your weapon. My weapon is love. My, my weapon is the love of Christ. When we suffer unjustly, we do not retaliate. We look to Christ. We do not seek revenge. We look to Jesus who suffered so tremendously on our behalf, the righteous for the unrighteous. He is righteous. We are not. We deserve to suffer. He did not deserve to suffer. He suffered for us. So arm yourselves with this way of thinking. I was thinking last night about the story of the, the missionaries that went to Ecuador. And uh, Jim Elliott and Nate Saint and... Um, can't remember the other guy's names. But uh, Jim Elliott had a gun. Because they had heard that, you know, some of these tribes people, if, they, if somebody had a gun and shot it off, you know, they'd, they wouldn't hurt them. They wouldn't harm them. So they, they had a gun. But they all committed to not use it to protect themselves from being killed by killing someone else the, the, the um, Ecuadorian or the, the Aka Indians because they knew they were going to heaven and these people weren't. Arm yourselves with this way of thinking. Not self-preservation, not evening the score, but firm and settled trust in God. Arm yourselves with this way of thinking, looking to Jesus for all of his mighty help. And he will help us. Again, he says, I am with you, not just to the end of the age, I am with you always to the end of the age. Every moment. Every single moment. Strengthening, encouraging, giving courage as we look to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. Help us, God, to be so taken up, as it were, with Christ and his work on our behalf, the righteous, suffering for the unrighteous. Help us to look to Jesus in those very moments when we are tempted to lash out in retaliation. when we are tempted to secretly settle the score and get even. 
to look to Christ, our Savior and Lord. In his name I pray, amen.